This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, what you do and where you're speaking from? Thanks, Owen. My name is Asif Khan. I'm speaking from Pritchard's Road in, in, in Hackney, where my studio is based. Uh, we're an architecture studio. It started in 2007. The studio is completely empty at the moment, and 20 or so people who work here are all you know, working remotely. What do we do? We design buildings, but like the work that we've been doing over the past years encompassed you know landscapes master plans it's you know objects installations all sorts of things and they've gone from like city scale to like really to tiny things like my playground in my kids local school you know um and involves all sorts of different processes and and uh, you know some like crafts all the way to high technology so the studio is kind of full of all sorts of different tools to help us uh, to help us do that uh, but at the moment it's very quiet <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm here as a skeleton crew here during uh, these sort of lockdown days. When did you know you wanted to be an architect and how did you get into architecture? I actually wanted to be uh, a doctor to begin with and um, I think in the early days it was yeah, medicine or some form of science um, really. Re- I was really into physics and things like that and friends of mine were applying for university and I, I, I sort of applied for medical school, they were applying for architecture. And I started to see the, the portfolios they were putting together. And I was incredibly jealous that, you know, because I, I had a lot of also kind of creative and artistic interests. I suddenly felt jealous that they were having a chance to put those things into, into their future lives. And I was, I was in a way letting those parts of me go, like leaving them, putting them to one side. And I kind of, in this crisis, I took a gap year and I did a foundation course in art and architecture in Prince's Foundation. I think that year of foundation sort of cemented in me this idea of going into architecture and sort of combination of, I think, everything I was interested in, basically, you know, from making to thinking, you know, art to human behavior. You know, both my parents are social workers, so we spend every evening at home would be spent talking about people and how people uh, have acted you know, in that day and so on and the way that you know your work can somehow have an effect on other people's lives so when i was 19 years old that's sort of when i w- was awoken to architecture and, and i haven't looked back really no that's not true i do look back a lot and i do i do think about what i do and whether architecture is a large enough vessel for my interests so that discussion is going on in my head constantly and a discussion which often happens in the studio, which is why projects tend to explore a lot of areas outside of traditional architecture, as well as being able to practice architecture. They're, they're, they're sort of, the broader thinking is something that I think is really important and that's, that's why I do it. It's also something I love doing. When I was researching uh, for this interview, uh, I came across something you said that I was really struck by, which I'm going to read out. It's a preoccupation of mine trying to create experiences to better understand where we are now as humans, placing ourselves in a bigger picture. Could you expand on that and how it informs your approach to design? Yeah, I, I forgot that I'd said that, but it's, <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? I was telling some students recently that we need to be really careful about 
people. Uh, they get out their architectural education because if we look forward maybe 20, 30 years, we may not have architects anymore, right? We may have people who come up with ideas for buildings or, you know, ideas for bits of public realm or real estate. But the actual act of designing, I think, can be replaced by computers. And you're going to see uh, artificial intelligence taking over a lot of things that, that people do and, and more things than we expect. This is a really important time for humanity, really, in preparing for that change that's about to happen, right? And I'm talking about the, I'm, you know, I'm a I'm ch deputy chairman of the design museum, but I'm talking about designing as an act disappearing, right? 20, 30 years time, designing can be done by a computer, right? So when I sort of talk about the, the bigger picture, that's one part of the big picture that I'm talking about is how we can, through the acts that we do now, make sure that humanity is best served in, in, in the future. Um, the, se the second part of the big picture for me is about life on earth. And everyone is thinking about that at the moment. You know, we've all seen the David Attenborough documentary and we're all sort of, you know, now aware of the damage that's been done to the earth and biodiversity and so on. And, and sort of where does, where do human beings sit in that? When you think about, you know, 99.9% .9 of species that have existed on earth do not exist anymore. They all went extinct. There's a question of whether we're in the 99.9% .9 or we're in the 0.1%. And I think we're beginning to get a sense that we might, we're not really sure. I mean, honestly, <laughs> when you hear that 2050 we won't be fertile anymore we're able to reproduce it makes you think that maybe we're on the other side for, for me that doesn't doesn't mean we have 30 years of living wild and we can do whatever we want now <laughs> it's about now trying to make responsible decisions so how do we best educate ourselves how do we find the best way to live here on earth how do we create a new generation who are best equipped to solve the problems of today and tomorrow so that's, that's sort of what the projects I do in my small little way. I try to awaken ourselves to those uh, realities and to get people to think in a more multidimensional way about our place in, in the city, in time and in the cosmos. One of your earlier projects that did that was the, the Future Memory Pavilion in Singapore, uh, which is around that project that we first met when I was working at the Royal Academy of Arts, which was the co-commissioner with the British Council. No, I sadly never saw it in person. I was really struck by the way that it seemed to distill a very complex set of ideas about cultural material memory into a really powerful sensory experience. And the idea that memory is, isn't just something we think about, but it's something we feel. You've done a lot of pavilions since then, and all of them are, are so different. But there's, I think, this recurring idea of using architecture as a way of crystallizing or a way of putting your finger on the rapidly changing circumstances, technological, environmental, social, cultural that we find ourselves in. Is, is that a description of, of your work that you recognize in any way or, or would you see it differently? It's not a kind of conscious preoccupation of mine, but it is somehow what happens when we start thinking about projects they reflect on the time that we're in and also the kind of the cultural moment. But what I, th what I think is quite interesting is that they take on the language of sensory experiences because sensory experiences are in a way timeless and they're things that we share with generations of people before us, many, many, many generations, and, and we'll share with the people after us and, and so on. And I think so, whereas culture is a tra transitory thing, right? Culture is changes generation to generation, meaning and symbols and everything. It's always constantly changing. So reducing things to sensory experiences somehow makes them universal and accessible. And it makes an idea 
which seems complex, into something which can be communicated to anyone. And I also want to talk about the, the role of technology in your work, because it, it's something that's, that's there, it's a sort of ever-present, but in a number of different ways. The technology is used to create a structure or an, or an experience, it's, a, it's an enabling device in a way, but it's also a, a, a subject, if that's not too reductive to, to describe it, or the phenomenon that you are actively addressing as something that, as you know, as you've just described, is you know fundamental to, to human experience. Technology is, after all, what makes us humans, from the very first primitive tools to the, the technology of today. Is that separation between technology as an enabling device and te technology as a theme or, or something that you're addressing? Is, is that a false separation or is it, are they completely connected and inseparable? It's a really good question. I, and I, because I think all of us are asking that question of ourselves internally. Is there a difference between this and the, the flint mallet and the phone? You know, are they, are they, are they just tools that you'd have day by day? Or is there something really changing in us? And I, t I think probably the answer is, is true uh, in both ways. There's a fantastic exhibition of um, Kenya Hara and Andrea Bransi did at the Trinale in Milano, which is was called Neo Prehistoria. There's a fantastic book as well that goes along with it, where they they sort of connected tools with verbs. So the, you know, to smash or to believe or to cannibalize, all of these things, and the actual tools that were used used to do these, all the way to today, you know, was, uh, silicones or life companions, and um, the iPhones in there as well. They call it neo-prehistoria because they said, they're saying that in the future we'll look back on ourselves as prehistoric people, not too long from now. Um, we're at this turning point. I think uh, uh, tools like uh, the internet and our kind of access points to the internet have changed how our mind works and how our culture works in ways that are more profound than some of the earlier tools. I'm interested in, in some of these projects studying the new tools that have that have come about and and really not leaving any stone unturned and exploring new ways of doing things you know if you think about the way you produce architecture it hasn't really changed for it hasn't really changed for a very long time you could say there are reasons there are reasons why that's the case because it's relating to construction and kind of the size of people you know how big's a door handle and how big's a room and and and, and so on but technology has changed that because now you can have a, a a telephone call with a thousand people if you if you want to and you someone can become a, a sensation a viral sensation overnight um dj Imambek from kazakhstan can win a grammy right so he's a railway worker from kazakhstan but he produced that song that everyone knows from TikTok. so a lot of unusual things are happening at the moment. We, we, I think we're exploring those through some of the projects. I'd say at the same time, the feelings that are produced by those technologies, maybe they are timeless. Maybe they're, maybe they're just amplified uh, or recontextualized. So I think it's just, it feels that it's appropriate today to explore the difference. I mean, I think construction technology is one of those things. New media is, is, is one of those things. Uh, the, the internet and kind of communications is, is one of those things. But what you're also going to see is like, which is which we, one of our projects explores is, um, is nanotechnology and the changing nature of materials. We've done that at different scales in like in, in Dubai. We've done that in, in the Hyundai Pavilion. We've done that with this kind of black uh, nanomaterial coating. We're on the verge of, of a whole host of new materials coming to existence, which change structures. You know, how big can a dome be? You know, it hasn't really changed for a thousand years, you know, since the Aya Sophia. 
hasn't we can't really do domes that much bigger than that you know you can do maybe one one order of magnitude bigger but you can't go more than that but when you start to get materials with properties of graphene and so on um, in them you'll be able to do very unusual things which will change public space they'll change climate they'll change um, internal climate that is and in a way defy gravity a little bit which which is what people have been searching for since you know Leonardo da Vinci or probably before that so I think there's there's, there's exciting things happening. We just want to make sure we don't, in being a commercial architecture office, which I think everyone in London is obsessed with being, you miss the opportunities of what the, the unfolding world is, is, is giving us. So we're trying to survive, but we're trying to make sure that we, we're speaking to the time and using the things that all the scientists and artists out there are creating. We're trying to make sure we put them into action so people can experience them. One of the, the projects that comes to mind hearing you say all these really fascinating things is the entry portals that you've designed for Expo 2020 in Dubai, which I think you mentioned, which has been delayed and will, will be opening later this year. Uh, an interesting echo of one of your first projects, the cafe at West Beach in Littlehampton. I don't know how conscious that was or not, but it, it seemed to me to speak to the My idea. Brother. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, much bigger. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of the portal or, or the opening is something that's really kind of fundamental to architecture. And I was really fascinated in the way of combining something that is, as a design, as a form, is so elemental, that's so pared back, but with this technology that it makes it appear almost weightless. It appears almost to be floating without the conventional supports that one might expect to see in a structure of that scale. Can you talk about how the idea arose and then how you went about realizing this extraordinary thing? We were asked, I think about four years ago, to get involved in, to become the public realm designer for, for Dubai Expo. And it was a place that you have to remember has never had a world expo. It's a place in the whole of Africa, Middle East and Asia wasn't really recognized as a point of interest for by the um the BIE, right, the Bureau of, of Expo. So, so you had like 1851 Crystal Palace and then ex expos everywhere in the world apart from Africa and, and Asia. And each of these expos were opportunities for those nations or those cities to speak to the world. But it was as though, uh, you know, when I arrived at the project in 2016, I hadn't realized it was as though we'd never asked that part of the world what they wanted to say. And I say we as though it's a kind of colonial thing, but I mean that as a kind of, as in the tradition of expos, you would have expected there would have been one in like Lagos or like Dar es Salaam or somewhere, you know. You know, and that's kind of where my, my background is, uh, you know, my mum is Tanzanian, Indian, and my dad's from Pakistan. So like for me, it was like, Jesus, why haven't, why haven't we ever been asked, you know? Why? <laughs> so I, I felt sort of a bit of a feeling that I needed to, not only not only do a good job for the place and the, you know from a from a design perspective global on a kind of global design perspective but also to sort of make sure the place represents itself well and has and somehow create pride in the region through the work and it, my favorite expos of all time you know and if i get the hall of fame uh, which i haven't visited these but just just the ones that have, uh, have had a really strong mark on me you know obviously the crystal palace and i grew up in east Dulwich which for those who don't know, I mean, like that's right next to Crystal Palace. I, I learned judo in Crystal pa at Crystal Palace and I, uh, down the end of my street is a pub called The Great Exhibition, right? So there's a, this was very much part of my uh, growing up. Hanover Expo, the projects of Fry Otto, the projects of 
Kenzo Tange in Expo 1970 in, in Japan on the metabolists and so on. Also the work of Vladimir Shukov in the uh, All Russia Expo and so So there's a, there are these kind of great projects of feats of structural engineering that, uh, you know, from Joseph Paxton to, you know, Shigeru Ban, you name it, that Expo is, is part of. And I felt it was incumbent on us to use, as these other Expos had, the opportunity to open the doors on a new era of, of engineering, which everyone did, you know, from the super frame in Osaka done by Kenzo Tange. It was, it was a great example of that. But also, you know, Crystal Palace was, in 1851, was the largest building on earth. And Paxton's architecture changed what our cities look like today, you know, glass and steel architecture. So there's that sort of feeling. At the same time, a feeling of how we can create something which is off place and builds upon the history of the region. And one is kind of Islamic visual culture, non-figurative visual culture in, in, in general, like, you know, the use of we always think of like pattern making and geometry as, as sort of decoration. Now, what I wanted to do is to bring that back into being about structure and mathematics. So that's what, that's what the project is. It's sort of a manifesto in, in a very lightweight material, a carbon fiber, about the minimum amount of material it takes to, for something to stand up and to provide shade. It's a mashrabiya, basically. It's a, it's, a, it's a shading structure done with the, the minimum of means but also with the, with the idea that it can be like a, fa a folded sheet of paper so that it's, you know, because of course it could be done in, in steel or aluminium or, you know, with 10 times more material probably. But this, this thing of let's make it light and impossible so that it's taken notice of and it becomes this something very powerful to arrive through. This idea of a, a doorway, it's a thing that's overlooked a lot in architecture, but it didn't used to get overlooked. Doorways were a big thing in the old, <laughs> if we go back... Uh, hundred years, it was, you know, often all about the doorway. We, we were, you know, of course, researching arrival sequences from um, within the region, you know, great forts, great cities, gates of Baghdad, all of this sort of thing from like Topkapi Palace, the forts actually within within the UAE. There's this sort of idea of a spatial sequence from like a gateway to a public courtyard, then through another gateway to a more intimate place with the final arrival, the sanctuary, whatever. So we, we kind of took this sequence and that's what you see when you, when you visit Expo this first gateway, and this will be opened and closed every day in a kind of ceremonial way. The public are welcomed in, and you go through this portal, which really is a, yeah, it's a doorway, but it's actually like a sort of, the magic of going through this impossible structure is of moving from where you were, what you knew before, and step through something into, into a new form of knowledge or a new point of, in your life. So this idea of self-transformation was quite important and of course people leave every night and the doors are closed at the end of the day it brings a life cycle to expo in a way that's physicalized and we've just started to see them using it opening closing it through this kind of preview period of expo and it's just it's a it's a very emotional moment that people are experiencing and um it is a door that's all it is you know? Of course, it's it's enormous, but it's um, but it has to be because actually the site is is enormous. It needs to be a wayfinding. It it acts as a kind of landmark from far away as well. You can see it from several kilometers away. So it's, it's the idea that you know where you're going, you know where the entrance is, and when you arrive there, you have to negotiate a, a doorway to get through it. It's 21 meters high, but it's still a doorway. And as you said, there's there's long history of pavilions being used as prototypes for new architectural ideas. And I guess one of the reasons that they are so suited to that is because they're temporary and they're able to offer this snapshot of a particular set of technologies or ideas or circumstances at a particular moment in time. I wanted now to shift to a 
project that you're currently working on, the, the Museum of London at Smithfield, because architecturally museums, I guess as conventionally understood, are the antithesis of the temporary. You know, they historically have been designed to appear fixed, unchanging, timeless places for both cultural and, and practical reasons. So I wanted to ask whether the, the museum project requires a shift in approach or is there a way of bringing that sort of sense of vitality that imbues the, the pavilions that, that you design to a type of institution which has to be designed for the long term that that needs to be a little bit more slower moving well i've always sort of thought of our pavilion projects as um as test cases for how a building can respond to visitors but also how a building can be part of a highly curated process you know like a like experience of of, exi of, of moving through a building when you when you work on an installation or an exhibition design or a pavilion you're thinking of every moment at every step at least that's what doing those projects has sort of trained me to do and we've brought that thinking to the to the museum of london in the way we where we think about the street and what you see through the windows of it or what the how the glass reflects light all the way down to the to the room the visitor experience of of, of how they settle in the large gallery spaces what it's like to be seen there and to see other people there how the architecture can stimulate social activity be a comfortable backdrop be the living room I guess we've been combining everything we've learned over the past, you know, 10, 12 years into the Museum of London. It's, and it's been, it feels like it's, a, it's been the best way to, to learn rather than be doing a load of museums before, <laughs> where I think the approaches would become reliable but, but boring. We, we've found ways to create interesting, reliable but interesting, <laughs> you know, uh, experiences of, of, of space, but also to ask questions in a different way of a client, to demand different expectations of our kind of of our team and ourselves. The approach on the pavilion projects, the speed of those things tends to sort of um, create a very interesting approach to sort of how one takes on risk and new ideas against feasibility and timescales. Like you become very good at evaluating what's possible in a given time frame and with given visitor numbers and with given materials. And what's, what's nice about then applying that to a project where you have eight years, you know, we, we're still, we've started four years ago, but, or five years ago, but we're still sort of three or four years away from completion. We were able to take that sort of approach to another, another level, particularly for an institution which is not just going to repot itself in a new pot. It's, they're really thinking about how they reform and um, what they offer to London in their new form. It's just been such a perfect project to bring our expertise to. And, you know, it was to grow as a studio, you know, moving to substantial bit of city making and to take our studio, you know, from all the way through to completion, delivering a heck of a lot of architecture has just been amazing. You know, really, we've learned so much and, and, and are delivering so much construction. I think the chat, the challenge is almost now going back into a quick project. I don't sure, I'm not sure if we could do it after, do, after doing like an eight year project. You, you kind of forget how to do, to think fast again. But I, I I think that will be a very interesting thing. I, th I think actually more, more officers should do it, working at these different cycles of thinking and construction. I think it, will make, it makes um, for a far more interesting life in the studio, but also I think uh, approach to design. But yeah, there's lots of energy here. Uh, it's even though COVID it happened, we, we sort of managed to keep it together and, and have a, um, the, the team sort of went from strength to strength and 
amazingly delivered this whole stage of stage four of Museum of London during lockdown, which was just incredible feat. So we're, um, yeah, ready for anything now, I think. <laughs> well, I think that sounds like a really good place to end. Asif Khan, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Owen. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.